Welcome to the Seven Innings Podcast, another fabulous show on tap today as we preview all the big series of the weekend. We're going to hit the mailbag. Of course, we got the player of the week. I think you may know who it might be, the heavy favorite through a perfect game with 21K, all 21K. And Holly Rowe is going to introduce you all to Bailey the Ballerina. All of that coming up on the Seven Innings Podcast BMO, Shro, Bro, Scarborough, Smitty. We got Kim, the PR superstar, Vegas, Vicky, B-Chaps, Buzz Lightyear, and the Cropper. Uh, we won't hear from everybody, but they are here as our spirit animals. What did we see around uh, the softball world this weekend? Well, a lot of stuff involving um, umpires, close calls, controversial calls, uh, even some ejections. So I think let's jump in there. And uh, Amanda Scarborough, what what are you seeing right now in terms of strike zone and slappers are their feet staying in the box? And, oh, boy, who's getting kicked out of games? All kinds of good stuff. I think we should first start out prefacing this that it's extremely hard to be an umpire. Like, I I just want to throw that out there. Like, they have a very, very tough job and we respect umpires. And I I know I can speak for myself on this. I I don't think that I would want to be an umpire because of the stress and everything that they go through. Um, but at the same time, I feel like in the games that I have watched, I have seen a smaller strike zone and I always look for the reaction, of course, from a pitcher or a coach and how I was talking, um, to somebody about this is that an umpire, sorry, a pitcher and a coach, a pitching coach in particular are going to see thousands of pitches in a bullpen that you, you throw to that same spot over and over and over again, because you know that it's a strike, you know, that if you throw it there at the knees on the corner, nine times out of 10, you should get the call. So when you see pitchers and coaches giving these really big reactions, it's not because it's like a fluky thing. It's because you're reacting to, because you've literally seen thousands of pitches in that spot and it should be a called strike. So pitchers and the coaches have seen more pitches than the umpires, of course, from a different view. But at the same time, I think that you're seeing coaches and and pitchers react because they're expecting that to be a called strike because they've done it thousands of times. So I've personally thought that the strike zones have been smaller. And I know that I've texted several of you guys about it. Um, what else do, is some of the things that you guys have been seeing or am I alone in this whole strike zone thing, Jenny? No, you're not alone. We've seen a lot of coach ejections happening because of that inconsistent strike zone. While the strike zone may be a little bit smaller this year, Amanda, like you're referencing, you don't see the big reactions in the first inning from a coach or from a pitcher as the zone is being established back behind the plate. I think the problem that we're seeing is that the zone is inconsistent where a strike that's called earlier may not be called later or a strike that is a ball early in the game might ring a batter up later in the innings when the strike zone, what they think has already been established. So I don't know, Jen, what are you seeing? There's no doubt that the strike zone has been inconsistent, but umpiring and that inconsistency is not a controllable. It's not a thing that a catcher, a pitcher, a coach can control. And so what I found to be very interesting, we saw Patrick Murphy get tossed from the second Arkansas game this last weekend. Jenny, you said you actually saw him hand his lineup to Allie before going to confront the umpire with full intention of being tossed. I was able to talk to Kayla Green, the Arkansas catcher, after that game. And one thing that she told me was that almost from minute one, the Alabama batters were very emotional, that Bailey Hemphill was emotional behind the plate, was having conversation. There were a 
few times when we saw Bailey Hemphill turn her head and actually confront the umpire. To me, as a catcher, those are uncontrollable things, just like the weather, right? And um, we cannot control an umpire's reaction. So how do we as players, how do coaches stay as consistent as possible and not let that impact their play? Because I do think that that impacted Alabama's ability to win the game on Saturday. So yes, I'm not trying to make an excuse for any umpire. Yes, they've been poor. There's no doubt about that. But how do we not let that control us as athletes on the field? Well, I I think another thing um, that is a big part of um, understanding the game as an athlete, as a coach, as an umpire, is that consistency is the name of the game, Jenny, like you mentioned. And I think as a pitcher, your first job when you go out in that first inning is to figure out the strike zone, the umpire strike zone, and have your catcher work with them. All right, maybe you're more of a, is a low ball strike zone versus a rise ball strike zone. And so then you're going to have to adjust your game plan. But I think the other thing that is important for everybody to remember is that I think COVID, as hard as it's been on the athletes, the coaches, and everybody, it's been also extremely difficult on the umpires. They have not had the reps or the season that they typically have. Maybe we have more younger umpires that are in the game. So the one thing I wish that we as a sport would remember though, is that, and I'm not saying this because I was a pitcher, because I was also a hitter too. I think a slightly larger strike zone is better for the sport because nobody watches our sport to watch batters, keep the bat on their shoulder and walk. We want to see the hitters swinging away. Uh, and, and I think that once we, we get to a consistent strike zone, that is a decent size. So pitchers can survive and balls aren't constantly flying out of the, the ballpark or, or athletes are being walked. Then I think our, our sport will be in a sweet spot. So that's what I would like to see a good, consistent strike zone. Yeah, Michelle, I think you're right. I think consistency is really important, but I want to go back to the conversation that we had with uh, coaches getting kicked out of the game. And, you know, Jen, I think that you're so right that we want to control the controllables, but there's some times when a coach getting kicked out can be beneficial to the players. I think it can spark a fire. I was calling the Georgia Kentucky series this weekend and in game one, Kentucky just blew out Georgia in game two. There was a controversial call and it wasn't about the strike zone. It was about a a ball that was fair or foul and assistant coach, Tony Baldwin for Georgia got so upset in the dugout and he was automatically kicked out of the game. And we talked to Sarah Mosley who hit the game winning home run for Georgia after the game. And she specifically called out her coach and said that fired us up and, and you love to see a coach that will go to bat for you. And that just, gave them more momentum in that moment than they would have gotten otherwise. So I agree. I think that there's some situations where you need to be calm, cool, and collected. And maybe that's about the strike zone because it's going to be called the rest of the game. But there's some times, man, where you have the opportunity as a coach to spark something in your team. And we saw that in Georgia this weekend, which I thought was really cool. What I'm curious about too, is of course, you know, the, the pitcher and the catcher have an awfully good view. The umpire has a, has a great view. We have the benefit of replay when you're in that dugout as a player or some of you that have been coaches, how good of a look do you really have at the strike zone? I I always marvel at how often coaches are yelling at umpires, but you have a side angle that's often low or, or, or often higher than the actual strike zone is right. I think there's truth to that, but I think at the same time, you as a coach know 
the positioning of the catcher, the height of the ball, you just know, like, and, and I know that, and they're not right a hundred percent of the time in the dugout. I will definitely say that. And you're not right as a pitcher too. You're going to want more than what's being called always a hundred percent of the time. But you know, because again, you're watching 150 pitches every game and times that by 50 games and times that by 20 years that you've been coaching. So it's just like this innate thing, Michelle, that you just happen to know inside the dugout. Yeah, coaches are reading their catchers. And when a catcher sticks a pitch and then goes, ah, and their body language drops, that's probably the first thing they're seeing. I think the other thing that kind of was the can of worms that, that got let out was the fact that the uh, at the beginning of the season, the emphasis was on the low strike zone that was going to be called this year. We were going to try to help the pitchers and give them the ability to get that low pitch at the knee. And it just seems like it hasn't been there this year. It's been a smaller strike zone instead of a larger strike zone. So I think the emphasis maybe that isn't coming to fruition is really what's frustrating people. I just wanted to say from a media perspective that I love it when coaches get kicked out because it's really dramatic and fun for television. And we love that. So I, I, I think it's awesome. And do you guys not remember, um, I can remember two instances at the women's college world series, Glenn Moore from Baylor and he got kicked out of the game and he went and stood right down the the third baseline at the fence. And you could just see his head over the fence, the whole rest of the game. I loved that. And then Lisa Fernandez, remember the controversial plays at the plate? Um, and, and her son and the, her little three-year-old boy Cruz in the stands with his, his sign that said, free the goat. Goat's my mom. So, I mean, I think I'm the wrong audience for this conversation because I love it. Well, uh, you, you have provided this whole row with a, a couple of front runners. Free the goat would, would be a good episode name. Also, can of worms. Smitty's always got a good one. Uh, to, to get us going. I, I've got another one though, as, as Jen Schroeder, by the way, Jen, congrats on your new glove. Hello. Thank you everybody. This is huge Appreciate news. That. Appreciate it. How, I'm excited. How many protégés, or as we like to call them Schroeder or as Buzz Lightyear wants to call them Schrobots are out there little mini Jen Schroeder catchers uh, that you have mentored over the years. Oh gosh, there, there's a lot of them, but I think, uh, one we could talk about this week, probably, well, there, there's a few, uh, but Kinsey Hansen of Oklahoma, oh, wow. Tara McGowan of Oregon. I mean, there's a lot of really good ones. I've been super lucky that these parents have just trusted me. Uh, but Holly, one quick question about our one quick comment about free to go. we had those t-shirts made in Oklahoma matter of 45 minutes for Lisa Fernandez. I just have to go back to that little comment. I cannot believe we pulled that off, but that's, Shrobots, see, that's good Shrobots. television. That's good television. Yeah. That's yeah. what we want. Well, that's you a guys good, miss uh, me. Have you missed me just even a little bit? I uh, feel like how I just popped on. I mean, we feel like we've freed the goat. I mean, we've got, we've got the hall of fame stadium reporter, Holly Rowe back with us uh, after her sabbatical for hoops. Um, and with all the while she's getting ready for the WNBA draft, but she found time for some softball. She also found some time. If, if you're following along on your lineup card, uh, at seven innings podcast on your social media, um, we're moving down into the two and three spots in the lineup. Going to talk a little OU Texas massive series coming up. You had a chance to talk to Janae Jefferson, right? Uh, Holly, I think Vegas Vicky has, uh, given Texas a, a 25% chance of taking a game this weekend from the Sooners. Yeah, I, I'm excited. She's obviously their top hitter. She's their, their great player. And uh, she was awesome. We've got a lot of good series and that's a top 10 matchup. So here they are. 
Well, Janae Jefferson, leading hitter for this hot Texas Longhorn team, 31 and three overall. Um, tell us a little bit. We talked to you earlier this year, but tell us a little bit about how your season's going and, and what you're proud of that you're accomplishing right now, hitting 484. Um, yeah, so I'm excited that we got to get back out here on the field. I'm honestly just grateful that we get to play softball again since last year with COVID and everything, uh, the season getting cut short. And as a hitter, like, I feel like I've been being a lot more aggressive in the counts and in the box, honestly, and then taking on that leadoff role to uh, trying to set the table early and get my teammates as much looks at the pitcher and allowing her to throw as many pitches as possible if I have to um, work those non-pitch at-bats even. so. And then on defense, too, um, I feel like I've been being aggressive there, just staying down on a lot more balls and being quick and trying to think about what I'm going to do before the balls hit to me type of thing. So I've just been trying to be more vocal out there too, like a vocal leader because I'm really more of a quiet, soft-spoken type of person. And I've been trying to vocalize myself a lot more out there. So, (laughs) Janae, you've only struck out two times all year. And it just seems like it takes forever even to get that first strikeout, no matter what year it is, not just this year. So like, what, what do you attribute that to? Like, how is it that you on two strikes, you have those nine pitch at bats, but you just always put the ball in play. Like, where does that come from? Yeah. So I honestly, uh, when I get to two strikes, I don't like to leave the third strike in the umpire's hands, really. Like, I don't want to watch a close pitch go by for him to ring me up, if that makes sense. So, and then also I, I try to be aggressive in account um, to make sure I don't get to those two strike at bats as well. So like, that's what attributes to a lot of me not striking out as much. So uh, Janae, you're not striking out and you're also going through a ton of decision-making at the plate. What am I going to do in this at bat? Walk us through what it's like to get in the box and say, okay, I need to create a plan and execute it and try and figure out how I'm going to beat the defense today. Yeah, so honestly, before I step in the box, like, I'll just look at the third baseman. And depending on her, like, demeanor, if you say, um, I'll just know if I could just lay down the butt and beat it out or not. But those third basemen that are, like, up in my grill and, like, trying to get away, (laughs) I feel like that's why I get more, like, conservative and, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't butt here. So I feel like it's all about their demeanor and what I see, like, in their eyes as a defense. So if I'm going to attack them or not, so. Janae, huge, huge fan of yours. I love watching the way you compete. I want to talk a little bit about this upcoming series. Do you feel like this is maybe the biggest OU Texas matchup that you've had in your career? And what are your your emotions and feelings behind this coming weekend? Yeah, so I've been telling a lot of my teammates, like when Coach Clark was here and we'd play OU, we'd even have close matchups with them then. And I feel like with this team now, we have even more talent. And it's just going to be a bigger matchup for this year. And I feel like, honestly, Oklahoma is a great team. And it's just going to be that head-to-head dogfight out there this weekend. I feel like as a team, we're really excited and to just show the people what the long ones are about, honestly. And going out there and, like, telling people that we're just as good and better than those, those Sooners. So I feel like, honestly, we're just ready to – go out there and uh, see some good competition for this weekend. 
Yeah, it's such a big matchup. Um, I, I love that you're just coming from class and I was told it was an art class. So tell us a little bit about your art and, and what you're studying there. Yeah, so right now I'm taking a printing class and I've never taken this type of course before. Um, in the past, I've taken like drawing classes and painting classes. So, but with printing, it's like a copper plate and you have to like etch it out with some tools. So it's kind of like carving tools. And then you have to roll the ink on the on the copper plate. So the ink goes in your carving. And then you have to put it on a machine and you roll the machine on some paper. And that's how it comes out as a print, if that makes sense. It's like old school Benjamin Franklin vibes right now that I'm getting. Like that, <laughs> right. that's what I'm imagining. Yeah. Uh, what kind of art do you want to do eventually? Like what are you the most interested in? Yeah, so my dream job is to be an interior designer and like work for some corporation um, that designs the inside of buildings, the inside of houses, and seeing like how the light structure works in a room or how the air conditioning works in a room or the sun coming in, how that looks in a room. So yeah, so interior design is really my passion or something and like being an architect one day, that's something that I'm really interested in. And I've always been like that creative type of person that always drawing things or sketching things on my notes or something like that so how do you feel like that helps you like away from softball like is it a release is it hobby like how do you incorporate it with a busy softball schedule right and like how do you still find time for it and and get to utilize that creative side of you yeah honestly um I feel like any type of art really it's kind of a release and a relaxing mechanism that um I don't know calms the body if you if you say um, so I feel like, yeah, like drawing in general is just a big release from softball for me and something that I could just go to on my spare time or use as a hobby throughout the day. So I feel like drawing in general is sort of a meditation mechanism, if you if you say. And how do you feel like that creativity transfers over to the way that you play softball? because now that I know this about you I'm thinking of your at-bats and the way you can bunt or slap or hit away like do you feel like that creativity actually helps you be yes um sorry you kind of broke up at the end but yeah I feel like art does um it does help me like imagine things before it happens if that makes sense so while I'm on deck I'm constantly visualizing my head like the play before it even happens or even on the field at second base um, I don't know about the diving play against ULL. Like I was envisioning that before it happened. So I just constantly, my mom's constantly going out there. It makes sense. Uh, now, Janae, before this weekend, walk us through what the next couple of days are going to look like for you. What's your pregame routine? What are you going to get ready? And how are you going to get ready to prepare for this big weekend? Um, I feel like as a team, we're honestly going to, we have practice in like a few minutes. Um, so we're honestly going to just go out there and practice hard, um, not do too much because we don't want like our bodies to be overexerted or anything like that. We want to still keep it calm for this weekend. But I feel like definitely coming together as a team as well to just know we want to accomplish this weekend and go in headstrong against OU. And I feel like definitely banding together and practicing hard this weekend is our main goal to get in the right headspace. 
Well, they've got a big four game series at Oklahoma. Before we let you go, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm fascinated about your high school. Um, you played a lot of sports. Vol- you know, you were a, an all district volleyball player, basketball, softball. How do you think being a well rounded athlete is making you who you are for Texas softball right now? Yeah, I feel like, um, like at some high schools, coaches really don't like their athletes playing other sports, but I was blessed enough to to have that opportunity to play different sports. And I feel like other sports, you get other attributes and other things that you don't get from softball alone, if that makes sense. So like, for instance, in basketball, you have to have that peripheral vision to see people to pass the ball to and see when to stop and change directions. And I feel like sometimes softball doesn't really give you that trait that you need necessarily. And for instance, in volleyball, like jumping as high as you can to make a a spike down. And I feel like softball doesn't really give you that. So I feel like other sports really help along the way to have that athleticism in the sport of softball. I love it. Well, you're having such a great year. We're so happy for you hitting 484, leading the Longhorns. And I know you said you're you're one of the more quiet people. You're trying to become more vocal. But every time I see a picture of you or a highlight of you, you're yelling and you're screaming and you're showing it on the field. So I, I think you are doing exactly what you had hoped for. Thank you. <laughs> well, good. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Have a great weekend. And we appreciate your time today. Janae Jefferson from the Texas Longhorns. Thank you. All right, let's uh, let's dive in. Who wants to lead a Smitty? How about uh, Texas OU? Uh, you know, there there's some there's some bad blood here. Uh, it it really has not been a rivalry in recent years. Texas would like to make it one again. Uh, Eighteen wins in a row. The Sooners have just been the dominant force in the Big Twelve Conference, and certainly uh, with them threatening the streaks records for best start ever and best winning streak ever. Boy, would Texas love to take them down. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So this is, to me, a very interesting weekend on many levels, because if you look at Oklahoma's strength of schedule right now, it comes in at a whopping 187. This is by far the most tested that Oklahoma will be. But let's go ahead and flip over to Oklahoma and look at their gaudy stats. They have four hitters over five And we actually, when we talked to uh, Coach White about that, he, he, I loved his optimism. He said, you know, that means they're still getting out five out of 10 times, Um, which, you know, normally we say they're getting out seven out of 10 times because we use the 300 benchmark. So the point of it is, is that um, this is a very, very complete Oklahoma team that hits the ball 93 home runs on the year so they can leave the yard. But one of the things that Coach White talked about is that This is the type of lineup that has a tendency to intimidate pitchers just on paper. And so what happens as a pitcher, if you don't have the right mindset, you go into that game, you make mistakes and they crush those mistakes. So you have to go in there playing against a team like this, a pick your poison type of lineup, throwing one pitch at a time and just thinking about living on the corners, mixing speeds, which is again hard because Velo does not intimidate Oklahoma. They sit on the changeup very well. They just are a very complete offensive team that then wraps around to become one of the, the best defensive aspects of their team. Because if, if uh, G. Juarez, who has had some injuries last year overcoming a bicep surgery, uh, Shannon Sale, um, 
Nicole may have any of those guys give up any runs, their offense comes back and plops them right back on the board. So, so this is going to be an interesting series for me. Uh, yes, I think that the energy, they're going to be battling against each other. I love it. You're going to be able to just feel that jumping out of the screen uh, during the game. But I love the fact this is the first time, in my opinion, that Oklahoma is truly going to be tested in a three-game series. Yeah, I um, am thinking about both of the offenses talked about Oklahoma's offense. And I feel like they're the offense that has really jumped off the paper just the entire year. But Texas has a really great offense, too. I mean, they're hitting 380 as a team. They're up there and runs per game in terms of top 10, top five in the nation. So when I think about Texas, I don't. I don't think that they're going to get shut out. I don't worry about their offense. Um, and I probably maybe worry, of course, about their pitching because they have to go up against the offense. But what I turn my attention to is their poor defense. I've seen Texas play in person this entire year. And if I was a pitcher, I would constantly be holding my breath when the ball was put in play. And that doesn't make a pitcher feel comfortable whenever you're doing that because you want to see the ball off the bat and think, yes, that's going to be a sure out. Yes, I can rely on my defense because you're already going up against all these phenomenal hitters in Oklahoma's lineup, but the ball comes off of their bat different. They're going to hit the ball harder. This is a Texas defense, 39 errors, 957 fielding percentage. So even if their pitchers are keeping them in the game, I worry about their defense being able to come through in pressure situations and make the big plays because I haven't seen it that much out of Texas. And that's my big concern with them is not their offense, but their defense. Yeah, Amanda, you're right on point. And I think what I look at in that is if you're Texas going into that series, you know, I got to play perfectly to be OU and not put so much pressure on that team. When you're an average fielding team, when you have offensive power, uh, I think that, you know, they've shown some struggles in the circle this year. They haven't been clean all season long. So that's a big task to go in and say, okay, we need Oklahoma to make some mistakes, which is going to be a hard ask because they're number three in fielding percentage in the country. They are a lockdown defense to go along with their incredible offense. So you are asking a large task to say, how is this team that's had no problems whatsoever going to make a mistake, leave the door open for us? Are we going to take advantage of it? And then are we going to play outside of our minds in terms of defense and pitching in the circle to try and shut them down. I just think it's going to be a really tough task. I think Mike White does a really good job of getting his players ready for that. I think they all have a chip on their shoulder. They're going to be ready to go. But again, what Texas's challenge is going to be, if they do get down, how do they stay confident throughout the entire weekend, especially after game one? What do you think, Jenny? Well, when you look at these paper gladiators, let me just set the scene for how good this Oklahoma offense really is. So the curve, so the all-time record for team batting average is 385 set by Arizona in 1998. Oklahoma right now is hitting 453. When you look at the career or the all-time number of home runs set by Hawaii back in 2010 with 158, they have 93 already with 16 regular season games to go. Then you've got slugging percentage. Oklahoma had the mark from 2015 with a 657 mark. They are slugging 877. This team is so stacked. Putting a run or two on the board, Texas, if they get it on the board, Oklahoma is not even going to sweat it. They're going to come right back at them and just absolutely put more runs on the board. I hope that Texas gives them a run for their money, but I see Oklahoma just absolutely bashing. Wow. All right. Paper gladiators. Nice. Very nice. What, what well is done, that? I, what is a paper gladiator? I would like more elucidation. 
when you look at them, you're intimidated by the look before you even take the field. So sometimes it can happen when you're, you know, warming up, you try to have a really crisp infield or you try to hit a lot of bombs in pregame. But when you look at the paper, you're already intimidated. I'd like more elucidation on elucidation, Holly Rowe. Well said. <laughs> well said. Here, here's here's what we were we were wondering: Is Oklahoma untested or well rested? G. Juarez has thrown 58 innings this year because they have only played eight full games. That's it. Everything's been run ruled. So G. Juarez, 58 innings. There are 22 pitchers in the SEC with more than that. How about the hitters? 169 innings. Arkansas has played 270. That's like playing 14 more games than, than what Oklahoma has played. So we'll find out this weekend if they are untested or well-rested, perhaps a little bit of both. They're adding as many games as they can, by the way. And after Texas, they are on the road at Georgia. So they are trying, uh, Oklahoma is, to get as many games in as possible. Um, Texas, by the way, as Amanda referenced, uh, Oklahoma's number one batting average in the country. Texas is number two. So they, they, will, uh, they will test that pitching staff for Oklahoma as well. Got games for you on Saturday and Sunday on the networks. Um, still to come, a preview of Alabama and Florida. We'll also get to our mailbag. It is a BMO, Shro, Bro, Scarborough, Horo, Smitty, Kim, the PR superstar, Vegas, Vicky, our whole cast of characters on board. Let's go out to Pac-12 country. And uh, Jen, you can lead us. We've got two huge series with Washington, Oregon, and ASU, Arizona, uh, set to tussle this weekend. For all four of these teams, these are must-win series, undoubtedly. So let's let's start in the Pacific Northwest with Oregon and Washington. This is going to be the battle of Brooke Yanez versus Gabby Plain. Strategy for these coaches come into play so much. This is also a battle against Schroeder Jays, Beth, with Morgan Flores and Terry McGowan, both of them going against each other. Brooke Yanez got the ball all weekend. UCLA. They, they literally said, here's the as you can. 1.59 ERA to Gabby Plains 0.94. Gabby has 20 wins on the year. Brooke only has 14, but her only two losses come against UCLA. Both of these offenses need to show up. Plain and simple, they're going to have to make adjustments. I'll be so interested to see what the coaches decide to do as far as strategy goes. Another reason why these are must wins are because games are getting canceled in the pack left and right from weather issues in Washington to COVID issues with UCLA to a lack of players being available for ASU. So these are all must, must, must win ball games because I do think it matters as far as potentially hosting a regional as well. I think because the West Coast is a lot more shut down than the rest of the country, these teams want to get these good quality wins in. They want to pass these eye tests to hopefully keep their fans at home to be able to see their team play. And then we head out to the desert with Arizona and ASU. Arizona comes in at that seventh mark, ASU at 13. 
When we talk about Oklahoma guys, ASU gave them their toughest game all year. Allison Royalty with pretty much one pitch, her screwball went right at those Oklahoma hitters. And that was only a 5-3 loss for ASU. We've seen ASU take two games from Washington. We've seen ASU get swept by UCLA. So who is ASU? I have that very same question for Arizona. Their pitching to me lacks a lot to be desired and their offense is hit and miss. Sure, they have Jesse Harper who will go two bombs in one game and then over in the next. They've got Deja Mulapola, Alyssa Palomino Cordoza, but those big time hitters are also silenced at times. So to me, both of these matchups are must wins for all four teams and both of them are very unpredictable. We can flip a coin. Kayla, you think about these series over on the West Coast. Well, good news is forecast from the Northwest looks phenomenal this weekend. We've got nice. sun all weekend long, so let's go. We're getting games in. Uh, second of all, I, I just want to point out, I'm from Eugene, and so uh, first and foremost, I don't think people understand the magnitude of a Washington-Oregon rivalry. Washington versus Oregon is actually the biggest rivalry for Oregon and Washington. It's not Oregon-Oregon State. It's not Washington-Washington State. There is uh, bad blood between uh, Washington and Oregon for sure. So I think that adds a little bit of juice to this series. I think both of these teams have something to prove. I think Oregon, after playing really well in some spots against UCLA this weekend, I mean, there was moments and innings where they looked like one of the best teams in the country without a doubt and and did an excellent job of hanging with Rachel Garcia challenging the Bruins all weekend long because at the beginning of the year when Oregon beat them, to be honest, I kind of thought it was a little bit of a fluke. Rachel Garcia's isn't Rachel Garcia's not there. It's just a different thing, but they proved themselves that they deserve to be in the top 10 without a doubt in my mind, but they're going to have that, you know, after series UCLA hangover, are you going to be ready to go against UW and Gabby Plain and face somebody completely different? Cause let's be honest, Rachel Garcia and Gabby Plain are about as polar opposite as pitchers as that you can get. So I think it's going to be a good one. So get ready in the Pacific Northwest. It's going to be a hot one. I love it. And I think, uh, Shro, you raise a very good point, especially in the uh, uh, pandemic era and with the predetermined sites from the NCAA. You're talking about traveling a lot of teams. It's much easier for one West Coast team to head Midwest or East than to send three other teams out to the West coast. So it's possible this year that there could be a limited number of teams hosting on the West coast. So you definitely want to try and get those head to head W's when you can should be interesting. By the way, we're, we're still planning. It's still a fluid situation, but we hope to find out by, uh, by the end of April, uh, what places might be hosting regionals and super regionals. Um, so that is not one must, by the way. Jen Schroeder has put two musts, must, must win out West for uh, number four on our scorecard. Let's move on now to the uh, to SEC country. And um, Holly Rowe, with perhaps the scoop of the season so far, talking to home run hitter Bailey Hempel, who is rewriting all the power records in Tuscaloosa, but a hidden talent from her younger days that we were not aware of. We want to hear from Bailey, right? As we preview the Tide hosting Florida. Yeah, I think the fun part of this interview is her secret talent, but I also thought it was really interesting. She says that she has been struggling at the plate, particularly in that series against Arkansas. So we talked to one of the best hitters in the country about how she changes things when she's struggling at the plate. 
Joining us now is the super slugger. Is that okay if I call you a super slugger? Bailey Hemphill from Alabama. What do you call yourself? What is your nickname? How do people talk to you like that? Uh, they call us super seniors on this team or grandmas, whatever you want to call us. Yeah, but you're a slugger. You're a super uh, senior slugger. What, like? Okay, I kind of like that one then. Super senior <laughs> slugger, super slugger. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, you're getting it done. That's what I know. You're hitting over 400, continuing to come up huge for Alabama softball. And I want to start out with this weekend because Alabama 31 and five, a really crucial series against Arkansas, one of the top 10 teams in the country. And in that first game, a 5-3 win from Alabama, it was you that homered. Tell me a little bit about this weekend series with Arkansas and just how hard it is night in, night out to win in the SEC. Yeah, that we knew going in it was going to be a tough series. Uh, I mean, a top 10 matchup. And they have some great pitching staff, great hitters. Um, but it, it just came down to who's going to get those crucial hits at the, uh, at the right time. It happened to be us on Friday and Sunday. I mean, they had it, they had it going on Saturday, but I mean, every weekend is, it's a battle. And Murph always says it's a marathon, not a sprint in the SEC. So that's just how our mentality, all of the SEC season. Yeah. It's you guys have already faced some of the toughest teams in the SEC, LSU, Auburn, Tennessee, but you have another really hard series coming up this weekend with Florida, a three game series that you guys get to host. How do you quickly just turn the page from this tough Arkansas series to another really difficult series with Florida? Yeah, we're just going to take, um, take, take, take what happened great last week and then build on that. And then also um, build on what, what we didn't do so well. And then, just, you know, prepare watching film for uh, Florida, watch their pitchers, their hitters, and just, you know, just having that confidence going in each weekend, knowing that we're a great team and then they're a great team. So it's just going to be another rubber match again. So tell me a little bit about what you did well in that last series and what you feel like you've been doing well this season. What What is good? You were just on a seven game hitting streak. <laughs> uh, I think personally, I struggled last weekend. I, I think I only had one hit. It was the home run, but um, I just... I was very fortunate that the people around me were getting it done. It didn't have to fall on my shoulders. And that's kind of the mentality of this team. And um, if it's not you, it's someone else. Someone else is going to step up big and get it done. But I think our biggest strength last weekend was our pitching staff. Montana really was on fire. And hopefully that'll continue for this weekend and the rest of the season. And our, and our pitchers just keep doing what they're doing. And then we'll get some crucial hits. When you are, you know, you're one of the best hitters that Alabama has ever had. When you feel like you're struggling, how do you get out of that? How do you attack that? Uh, I, I try not to dwell on it and just know that I am a great hitter. Um, I, I just remember what I did well and then try to mimic what, what happened in that moment. Uh, but yeah, if I'm struggling, I just try not to dwell on it for too long and just, just know that uh, I, I'm going to be a tough out. That's, that's just the mentality that I'm, I need to have in the box. Who put a bat in your hands for the very first time? <sighs> um, probably my dad. I mean, I, I was like three or four, so one of my parents. What do you think has made you so good at the plate? Like, you know, growing up and, and all of your time there at Alabama, what has made you such a confident hitter? Uh, I think just having a great approach at the plate, knowing what I want to hit. Um, I don't tend to fish a lot at bad pitches. I mean, they'll get me every once in a while, but I kind of have a good plan when I'm going in the box and then just sticking to it not getting, not getting out of my, uh, not getting ahead of myself and just trying to hit good pitches.
That takes comfort and discipline though, because you, you want to get that slam. I mean, you're, you've got such power and such comfort there, but it also takes discipline not to fish. How have you developed that as a young player? I think what benefited me the most is um, being a catcher. You're in the bullpen a lot and you're seeing great spin. I mean, I caught Alexis Osorio, Sydney Littlejohn, uh, Montana Fouts. I catch them on a daily basis. So I see the different types of spins were really good pitching. And I think that's what helped discipline my eye as a hitter. Yeah, it's a great point because you're seeing so many, you're looking at the ball in a different way but you're seeing so much behind the plate. I think that's a great point. Let's talk a little bit about your defense. Tell me what you're proud of from your catching position this year. Um, I, I think I'm become such a, a, a good leader behind the plate. I mean, I haven't caught a lot because I was behind Reagan Dykes and she was a phenomenal catcher, but I've transitioned into that catcher role this year. And I think I've um, really developed a good leadership role. Um, especially with the pitchers, knowing what to say to them, how to calm them down, how to get them fired up. Just, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's my strength behind the plate. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're so excited. Your series kicks off this weekend against Florida. Um, before I let you go, um, last thing, if people need to know something interesting off the field about you, give me one great story off the field about you. Off the field. Um... An interesting fact or a story? Either. Uh, an interesting fact is I did ballet for eight years. Yes. How? Eight years? Yes. Did you ever do a uh, toe? No, I stopped before that. Okay. <laughs> that was the that okay. was the turning point for me. I don't think I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know my next question is going to be how and when can I get these ballet photos from your childhood? Um, so I told my mom they're on strict lockdown. She'll never be released to the public. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can we just negotiate one for your senior year? If you're at the World Series, can we just negotiate yes. for that? If we are at the World yeah. Series, you'll get I'll, I'll, just for you, yes, I'll give you one. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, I was going to call you the super senior slugger, but I might have to call you the baller, Bailey Ballerina with the mostest. <laughs> I like it. Well, thanks for your time today. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. And Holly, does she realize um, where she is statistically? Do you think Bailey's paying attention? I mean, she could become the best ever at Alabama at the plate. I really get the the feeling that she's just locked in on each moment. Um, you know, she's she's catching now and 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 got other things that she's doing. Yeah. And I think her focus is just on, you know, one pitch at a time, one game at a time. And I love where her mind is at right now. Well, and Holly, I had that series with the Texas AM Alabama series. And actually that was one of the things that Coach Murphy talked about when we talked to him before that series was that Bailey Hempel is not focused on her individual awards. She's really just wanting to get the one thing she can't or hasn't gotten so far, and that's a national championship. And so while individual accolades are so important, she really just wants the natty. Uh, yeah. So looking at some stats, so I'll be on this one and, and really looking forward to it. Of course, there's SEC championship implications on the line right now. Arkansas is in first, Florida is in second, Alabama is in third. So both teams are trying to stick around to still try to beat out Arkansas to get that top spot. The last 12 championships have gone to either Florida or Alabama. If you've watched any of our SEC games, you probably have heard us talk about it, but they've been the two teams that have been at the top of the standings year in and year out. When I think about Alabama, 
in their pitching staff, I can't not think about how many home runs that they've still continually given up. Montana threw very well against Arkansas. In fact, they're the best home run hitting team in the SEC, and she didn't give up any home runs against them, had 23 strikeouts, 14 innings pitched. But this stat is just incredible to me, the fact that since Kentucky game three, 66% of the runs that Alabama has given up have been via the long ball. Kentucky game three, remember Kentucky won that one, walked it off before that only 24% of their runs that they've given up came via home run. So they're giving up more long balls are more susceptible to it. But at the same time, Florida is hitting more right now. 15 of the 33 home runs that Florida has hit this year have been in the last 10 games. Charlotte Eccles and for the last five games has hit one in the first inning. So it seems like two teams are kind of trending in different directions with their pitching staff and with their offense. And I think that both of these teams are really similar where they've had really standout top sec moments. And at the same time had games, it's like, wait, is this the same team that is going to be at the top of the sec standing? So it's been really, really interesting to follow their trends, Michelle, and, and see how both teams have been doing as of late meeting up this, this weekend. Yeah, I'm super excited for this matchup. Um, as you said, all the implications, here's Arkansas out in front, and these are the two teams that have won the last 12 uh, regular uh, SEC championships. And when you really dive into their statistics and how even they are, this series to me comes down to execution. Because if you look at their batting averages, they're five and six in the SEC. Bama has a 306 average, Florida a 304 average. Florida walks more than they strike out. Alabama, they strike out a little bit more than they walk. Pitchers, number one ERA in the conference is Florida with a 1.42 ERA, Alabama a 1.53. So one and two there, but the difference between Alabama and Florida is that Alabama has about 120 more strikeouts on the season than Florida does. But you look at the defense, right? Florida has the number one defense in the SEC. They've made just 17 errors. Here's one of the issues that I think where Alabama is going to have to be really clean is defensively. 39 errors on the year. They're number 11 in the SEC and fielding percentage coming in at 962. So again, it always comes down to that execution. Uh, I think it'll be interesting all the way around to see how each of these coaches try to play to the strengths and the weaknesses, not just of their own team, but their opponent. Kayla, what do you say? Well, first and foremost, this is why you go to Alabama or Florida is for this series and for this competition. This is a big deal and this matters. And like you said, Amanda, it's been who's won the SEC regular season for the last 12 years. So the rivalry is real. And I listened to an interview from Coach Murphy and it's a healthy rivalry. It's not a dirty one. It's just one where two teams come every single year that are top-notch, top talent in the SEC that go in, compete, and try to win a championship. So again, you can't understate the importance of this series. And honestly, when I think about it, I still like, I, I feel my like blood boiling when I think about playing the Gators and getting into that series. So it, it matters. And uh, one of the keys that I, I want to look at this weekend when they're playing is the slappers, the lefty hitters. So Alyssa Brown, Alexis Mack, KB sides is not necessarily a true slapper, but a lefty triple threat in some respects. I think they're going to be a huge part of whether or not Alabama wins and loses because against Arkansas in their wins, they had five hits in their loss to Arkansas. They had one hit and five strikeouts. So, and, and in that loss, they scored no runs. So Alabama puts a lot of pressure. When you talk about 
their inability to hit the long ball very well. They put a lot of pressure on the top of their lineup to come through. And they have 215 runs scored this year compared to Florida's 200. And Florida's a better home run hitting team. So Alabama's going to get you with the small ball. But those players have to come through if Alabama wants to take two out of three against the Gators. I think that's a really big key. And, hey, this is an evenly matched series. Uh Bama wins the overall, but it's 40 to 37. So this has been just a heated matchup for so long. And I cannot wait to see the Rhodes house. We got a few fans in the Rhodes house this weekend. It's going to be a good one. Okay. I'm really excited to see who gets more stolen bases because that's, you talk about small ball and I think Alabama is really good at putting pressure on defenses. They have 51 stolen bases in 61 attempts, but Florida is sneaky good at that this year too. They've only been caught stealing twice. So they've got 39 steals themselves. I think I just want to know the over under on stolen bases, those two, two teams putting pressure on the defense. I think that's going to be kind of a sneaky, intriguing part of this, this series. Well, and Holly, another thing that I look at in this matchup, we always know that game one and game three, we're going to see the starters. So we'll probably see Fouts versus Hightower, right? But to me, the difference in this matchup is the pitcher that pitches the second game. So Kilfoyle, Lugo, that matchup to me is going to be the bigger one because that's where we're seeing a lot of miscues for Kilfoyle. In her last five appearances, she's given up eight home runs and those are her only home runs of the year. And so for me, she's given up a lot of long balls and Lugo, no home runs given up this year. She's got 17 strikeouts in her last five appearances, but five walks. So Plate appearances are going to be key. Are you going to be able to draw the walk? And are you going to be able to capitalize on a ball left over the plate by a pitcher who may be able to leave that ball big? I'm so impressed with our research department. This is fabulous. All the hard work behind the scenes that our, our ESPN family puts in to provide this kind of insight. I love it. Uh, just hearing from Vegas Vicky, Vegas Vicky, 51% chance that Florida takes two of three, 49% chance that Alabama takes two of three. That's, that's how close it is. Well, I'm speaking of, speaking of 50% ish of what you just said, uh, the middle number <laughs> is that <laughs> the attendance will go up at Alabama at the Rhodes house to 50%. So that will be a good thing for softball fans. Awesome. It'll go from 20% to 50 T-Town never down. Let's keep, let's hope that number keeps going up in time for the SEC tournament, which is headed to Tuscaloosa this year. Uh, we are moving down our lineup card and it looks like it's mailbag time. Woo. We got some great stuff. We got video questions last week. I don't know how we're going to top it, but Amanda Scarborough's got a good idea. Gosh, that video question was just so awesome by D money. Oh, I loved it. Okay. This is going to be Trevor from Illinois, who is an LSU fan. His question is, do you think we could see more upsets of national seeds and regionals because of the predetermined sites who wants to answer that one first? I'll go. So my senior year, Arizona traditionally hosted postseason single year always had the had postseason at the house but then my senior year we got sent to Florida State and we were so mad almost to the point that I would say that is the most pivotal piece of that 1996 year that allowed us to repel to a national championship if we had stayed home we would have stayed complacent or satisfied but because we got shipped all the way across the country we were so angry and we felt so slighted 
that that was that chip on our shoulder that pushed us up and over the edge and gave us the national championship. Michelle, what do you think? I feel like every coach is probably telling their, their teams right now, or they should be telling their teams right now, look at Washington, look at what they did when they won their national championship. They spent the entire time on the road because they did not have lights. So regionals, super regionals. And of course, everybody's playing on the road at Oklahoma City. Kind of maybe Oklahoma isn't, but it's, you know what I'm saying. So I think that at this point, it's all about the men, mindset and the mentality. This has been a crazy year anyway. So I think, I think it again comes down to like we were talking earlier, execution the teams no matter where you're playing at home or away, you have to execute if you're going to continue to to make your way to Oklahoma City perhaps the greatest road trip of all time that UW team going to UMass I believe and then Georgia Tech before going straight into Oklahoma City and Danielle Laurie pitched not only deep into the night but early into the morning in, in uh, one of those regional games um, here's the outlier for me I think is what the committee decides to do with the RPI and what the committee decides to do with the Big Ten teams can you imagine, say, if Minnesota is considered like a 45 and, and, and the committee thinks they're the 45th best team? What if Amber Pfizer is going to uh, Fayetteville, where Arkansas is, is the one seed and Virginia Tech is the two seed? Uh, you know, those kinds of things, I think, are intriguing to me. What they decide to do with the Minnesotas and the Michigans of the world, Michigan go, going down to Texas? where LSU is the, is the two seed and Texas is the one, and you got to beat Bobian and Storaco three or four times? Oh, boy. Jen? My point I just want to make is I feel like a lot of you guys, Kayla, Amanda, even Jenny, you guys played in these big stadiums, right? And in the pack, I felt like it was never guaranteed that we were going to host. Washington didn't have lights. I can remember explicitly my freshman year showing up to practice and a warning track was being built. And I looked around, I'm like, we are in season. Why is a warning track being built? And coach Enquist looked me dead in the eye and said, we get more points for the bid. Like we, we needed to actually accumulate more points. We didn't have lights. We it's Friday in LA. You had like two people in the stands. That's it. So I feel like this was something and two, maybe exaggerative. It was like my mom and Tara Henry's mom. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that, you know, uh, us old school players in the pack had to deal with all the time. So I feel like it's this new luxury that people assume UCLA is going to host. If UCLA does not have the standards to host, if they cannot accommodate fans, then should not host bottom line. So could it affect top seeds losing? Maybe, maybe not. But I think these girls just need to toughen up a little bit. Sorry, Amanda, I went on a rampage there, but. Ouch, that was very strong. I feel like you're you're the old guy like get off my lawn right now. It's usually me and Beth. I, I'm shocked right now. Um, Is she Stadler or Waldorf? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's funny, but I'll, I'll say this to you. So this is very random and you guys are going to roll your eyes a little bit when I say this, but I was watching softball over the weekend with people who don't know the teams at all, just a casual softball fan. And we were watching a game that you and Michelle were doing Northwestern Minnesota. And then right after that, we watched UCLA, Oregon, I believe the next night. And, and the comment that these casual fans said was, Oh my gosh, the big 10 is awful. They they don't look athletic. They're not fast. And I was like, you know, to the eye, the uninitiated eye, the Big Ten is behind right now. You know, we're trying to make excuses for them because we love the pitching. We love Amber Pfizer. We love Hutch at Michigan. You know, these are great teams. But, but the Big Ten, because of how they voted to do their season this year, 
they're behind and we have to be realistic about that. And nobody's going to want to hear that. And they're probably going to be mad at me for saying it. But I think at some point you have to be honest that this year is not going to be fair. Teams have voted to go about it different ways. Teams have had different uh, COVID pauses, different amount of games. And the more you get used to, this is not going to be fair. Be flexible. The better you'll be for postseason. Buckle up. That's why it's so impressive that the SEC and the Big 12 basically kept their schedules exactly the same, you know, exactly the same with non-conference and conference. Okay. Moving on to this next one. And I want to apologize for Trevor. I said his question, Trevor is a girl. I just looked her up. I'm so sorry, Trevor. Uh, I really apologize. So, um, let's go to Jason in Austin, Texas, who is a fan of Texas softball. And Jason wants to know with so many top 25 matchups this weekend, do you see a team that really needs that statement series win? And before you guys answer this, we've talked about a couple of top 25 matchups. I wanted to point out a couple more. Number 10, Arkansas will be at number 20, Georgia. Uh, receiving votes, Texas State, who has played well, uh, will be playing number 17, Louisiana. That's big in Sunbelt standings. And receiving votes, Wichita State will be going up against number 25, UCF. That's really important in the American Conference. So which, uh, which one do you feel like is the most important in terms of like must wins for these teams? I actually think, you know, looking at Arkansas, they all of a sudden have a little bit different of a pressure on them because Bama and Florida are going to play this weekend, which we've already talked about at length. But they hold all of the power. They control their own destiny. And Georgia is coming in as a very hot hitting team that just came way back from the dead against Kentucky ended up winning two out of three. So you have a very hot hitting Georgia team with a pitcher, Mary Wilson Avant, who is actually one of the best in the conference. We don't really talk about her enough, but I think for Arkansas, again, hangover weekend, you could go get upset. You could lose the sec this weekend. So you have to be ready to play Jenny. Which one do you think? I'm looking at the Texas state, Louisiana matchup. I really like that one. Um, Texas State has played such a tough schedule. They have a 44 RPI right now. Whether we want to put a lot of credence into the RPI or not, they've still played a really tough schedule. They lost to Texas just one to nothing. They beat Texas A&M. They've had 10 one-run games, whether they've been losses or wins, they, just within one run. And they play Texas again right after this series. And so I think Texas State, if they can come out strong against Louisiana with a 24 RPI, not only will it help their RPI, but it'll give them a little bit momentum heading into a game that they almost won the last time against Texas. All right, let's move on to the next one. This is Renster from Brooklyn, New York. The favorite team here is Florida. And the question is, who are some of the freshmen who have caught your eye this year? Well, I'll jump in with, since uh, Smitty and I will be working that Oklahoma-Texas series, I'll jump in with the two youngsters, the top two recruits in the country, uh, Jada Coleman and Tiare Jennings, um, have been fabulous for Patty Gasso and the Sooners. Uh, power, speed, glove work, uh, those are probably the two that, that stand out uh, the most to me. Yeah, I'm going to jump in and say Aaron Koffel uh, has been outstanding for Kentucky. Uh, Bailey Dowling, before she went down at Alabama, uh, was having a great year. Just a couple of other names to throw out. And I'll give a little love to the Pac-12. Alyssa Brito from Oregon. She's one of the smoothest shortstops. She continues to come up clutch. Huge home run against Garcia. I mean, she just seems to be impressive just day in and day out to me. 
Well, and let me bring up four names that we probably don't talk about on the podcast and may not this year because of the way that their teams are playing. But Madeline McAnally from UC Santa Barbara is hitting 449 as a shortstop. Emma Osmondson from South Dakota State, an outfielder, is hitting 449 as well. Addison Bernard from Wichita State has 16 home runs, so up there with those big boppers. And then Jenna Wildeman of Central Arkansas leads the country with 37 stolen bases. What a good freshman. Okay, last question. This is from Amanda in Austin, Texas, whose favorite team is uh, Texas A&M, obviously. Um, to Jen, just a couple notes about your new glove. And if you wanted to say a little bit more about it. Wow, that's so nice. You know, it's not just my glove. I, I'm really excited for Lauren Chamberlain developing a first base specific glove, Morgan Stewart developing an infield specific one, and Haley McClenney developing a specific outfield glove, which I don't know if truly that's ever been done before. But one thing that I think is cool is it's not just about our names. It's not just a glove that has our name. We literally got to deconstruct the glove. So say, what are the problems that I see in a catcher's glove and how can I solve those problems? And it's about the generations to come. So I got to name my glove Rudy after my little daughter. And truly when I was designing it, I thought that the girl who was wearing this glove was going to inspire Rudy. So these girls who get to slip these gloves on their hands, hopefully they feel confident and that they know that they're inspiring the generations to come. Holly, what do you think? I was, I was really curious because I was reading the release from Easton about these gloves. And I love that they're designed for female hands, that these have women in mind. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, you deconstruct it. What were the important characteristics that you had for a catcher's glove? Yeah. So for me, I actually got to change the whole pocket. So normally when you put your hand in a glove, you have your five fingers spread, but we know a lot of catcher's thumb and finger will be jammed and get bruised. And, and, and that's terrible. I mean, we have very hard pitchers in this game. So I got to change the entire finger stalls to open up and deepen the pocket. I added an, an axe suede, which is a sweat resistant material in the hand. So your palm wouldn't get sweaty. Um, I put motivational quotes on it. And then one thing that happens a lot with catcher's gloves is they don't, it doesn't tighten and it doesn't stay like Velcro will just become unstuck. So we created this quantum closure system that allows for you to tighten it to any wrist size and it actually stays that tight, which is just so cool. Just little things like that that make the world of girls. Quantum closure sounds like the next James Bond glove. Yes. That's what I like. Yes. That's the kind of talk that you don't get anywhere else. Finger stalls. You don't get that anywhere else. I mean, that is spectacular. Congratulations. And, uh, and I, I can't wait for Rudy to watch some, uh, some of the, uh, the women that will be using that as she gets a little bit older. That's going to be fun stuff. Amanda, great job once again with the mailbag. If you have questions, folks, send them to us early in the week uh, at Seven Innings Podcast. We, uh, we tape midweek and release every Thursday. We are so excited to have Holly Rowe back with us for her favorite segment. And it's always number eight on your lineup card. This week on Shagging Stats. So my shagging stat this week is going to be a broad one because we're looking at the Texas Oklahoma series. We know that Oklahoma can bash their fantastic, but did you know that there are seven hitters for the Texas Longhorns hitting 380 or above? This is a hot hitting team, as you mentioned, number two in the country. Seven hitters, 
382 or above actually. And uh, we'll have Janae Jefferson. You've heard from her hitting 484. Those are my shagging stats. Well, that team, Texas plays Oklahoma. We've talked a lot about Oklahoma's offense and they're up there in a ton of, in a ton of offensive categories. However, Linda Rush from Drexel has a 540 batting average. That's in front of all of those Oklahoma players that leads the nation in batting average. And she also has an 1800 OPS. So Linda Rush is swinging it this year, you guys. Of all these batting average stats and at this point of the year, it's so hard to raise your batting average. So my shag and stat is going to shout out Kayla Kowalik who entered the weekend last weekend versus Georgia batting 482. And after going nine for 12 with a couple home runs, she is now hitting 508. So busting up that batting average in one weekend to get over 500 Kayla Kowalik for Kentucky. I'll give it to another hitter, but I want to take it to the Horizon League. I always like to spread my love out a little bit. So from University of Illinois, Chicago, Kayla Weddle, she might be one of the best leadoff hitters in the country. A 422 average, she's 18 for 19 in stolen bases, but yet she has 29 RBIs with 13 doubles and eight home runs from the leadoff position. So a super well-rounded player from the Horizon League. So I've got a big look ahead. My number's 98. There are 98 days until the soft, softball begins in the Tokyo Olympics. A big day for our sport. We've been waiting so long. We will be the first sport played at the Tokyo Olympics. The opening ceremonies don't start until July 23rd. So softball kicks off July 21st with the gold medal game on July 27th. I cannot wait. 98 days, ladies. Finally, back in the Olympics. All right, I'm going to go to uh, Shaylin Govin out of uh, plays at Stephen F. Austin. She's a sophomore first baseman. Check these stats out, ladies. Um, she's got a 425 batting average and 139 chances over at first base. Zero donut eggles. So uh, bagels, bagels or errors. So uh, 12 home runs also on the year. So she's been outstanding. So did you call it an eagle? A an eagle. It's a it's an because egg an eagle is also round. I feel like that's the right term as well. An eagle. I love it. Is that the name of the podcast? <laughs> no, because there is something in the middle of an egg as opposed to nothing in the middle of a bagel or a zero. So, oh, so you got strange. the outer shape right, but I think it's going to be tough to overcome paper gladiators at this point unless something miraculous happens down the stretch here. Um, I'm going to go to um, the Red Hawks of Miami of Ohio and Courtney Veerstrup. So on Friday night, she throws a no-no. And two days later on Sunday afternoon, she throws a perfect game against the Akron Zips. I mean, how perfect is that? How perfect is that? Okay. The Akron Zips zip on a Friday and a Sunday against Courtney Veerstra. As good as that was, folks, she's not the player of the week, is she? Because we had a massive story in college softball uh, coming from North Texas. Who wants to jump in on this one as we move down to the bottom of our order on our seven innings podcast, Player of the Week? Well, she's just from about 10 miles away from where I live. It's, she's from Pflugerville, Texas. Um, and Hope Trotwine struck out every single hitter in a seven inning game. So 21 outs, 21 strikeouts, perfect game. Never been done before. She's got a lot of attention. I mean, I think I feel like we should give her the player of the week. I don't know what you guys think. No doubt. And Amanda to you, I know you guys are the pitching gurus, but she did not have one three ball count in that game. 
She, and it's the second time she's actually thrown 21 strikeouts in a game. Um, but there were 29 batters the last time that she did it. So second time she was able to do it in seven innings. So impressive. Just like her Instagram bio reads, guys, hope is dope. 100%. That's her Instagram bio, and I am here for it. Oh, boy. Hope is dope. Does that overtake paper gladiators? Oh, man. That's a darn good podcast, everybody. We got, we got a lot of stuff uh, to look forward to this weekend. Great series coming up around the country and we've uh, we've got you covered all weekend long uh in particular with uh, alabama florida and oklahoma texas uh, all over the airwaves so thanks so much for joining us on uh, this edition of the seven innings podcast and our paper gladiators this week's seven innings podcast at seven innings podcast on your social media don't forget to send us your questions for next week's mailbag